Hello, my friends. My name is Chris K, and I'm the host of Burner Phone Podcast, an educational series about the world of crime from the people that lived it. In this episode, I'll be talking to... I'm Brad Heron, and I am living proof that our choices have consequences. I'm a former meth cook. Hey, Brad. How are you doing, man? I'm doing very well, Chris. Thank you for calling me, man. Yeah, thank you for uh, taking me up on this interview. Um, so so tell me, man, where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in southwest Kansas on a big farm. Uh, my grandparents own about 10,000 acres in southwest Kansas irrigated corn and wheat. And, uh, you know, just to kind of break it down the, the scale of the operation, last fall we cut over a million bushels of corn. And there's 52 pounds to a bushel of corn, so you can kind of do the math on that deal. Wow. What did you, uh, what did you do for fun, man, growing up on the farm? I love to hunt and fish and, you know, do all the outdoor activities that come along with that, ride quads, and just uh, basically have a lot of fun outside. You know, I've never been much for sitting inside behind a desk or anything like that. And whenever I was in uh, in second grade, my dad came to me and he told me that we were going to be moving to Houston, Texas. And uh, so that's really where culture shock set in with me. And uh, we moved down there and I lived in Houston, Texas until I was 16 years old. And then I moved back up and to the panhandle of Texas, which is just about an hour from where our farm is in Kansas. So what what brought you guys to Texas? What, what made you guys move? My dad became a preacher and um, decided to go and start a church down in uh in southwest care in, in houston and uh whenever we got down there it was uh i'll tell you what chris the largest city i'd ever been in my whole entire life up to that point had been wichita kansas and then i moved into the third largest city in the united states and uh, we moved into the nasa community where johnson space center is where mission control is and for the first time in my life you know that was probably where i felt uh, totally inadequate. You know, I went from being a very popular young man whenever I lived on the farm. I mean, everybody wanted to come out to my house on the weekend and go ride quads and, you know, have the, do all the fun freedom things that you get to do out in the country. And then I moved to Houston and here these kids were into Lexus and Mercedes and I was into John Deere tractors and John Deere combines. And uh, just to kind of throw a light on what I mean by that is, one day, my buddy walked up to me, and he said, Brad, have you seen that new LS400 Lexus? And I looked at him, and I said, what's that, some new type of tractor? <laughs> because where I came from, where I came from, everything was JD4630, JD4850. These are makes and models of John Deere tractors, man. And uh, so it sounded like a tractor to, like, to me. And, I mean, they, they looked at me like I was a, some country bumpkin from outer space. And uh, that's where I experienced bullying for the first time in my life, too, you know, and I really started to try to hide who I was and, you know, walk away from who I was and try to conform to my surroundings. You know, every, every both of us, anybody that's out there, we have this innate quality about us that, you know, we want people to accept us. Nobody wants to be the butt of the joke. Nobody wants to be made fun of. And a lot of times in that, to gain that respect or to get that sense of security that we're looking for, what will we do? We'll walk away from the things we know to be right and true in life to go follow the crowd. And uh, that's exactly what I did. And I, I speak in high schools during the week now, and I tell the kids, you know, there's a quote by a lady by the name of Jana Mayo that says this, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. 
And I didn't realize those friends that I was starting to allow to influence me in my life would influence me in such a negative and drastic way. So tell me about your your peer group, your social circle at that time. Who were you hanging with? Well, the the kids I was hanging out with, I mean, you know, they, they weren't raised a lot like I was. I mean, uh, their mom and dads, they weren't real involved in their lives. Uh, you know, they were smoking weed. By the time I was in, in, in fifth and sixth grade, I was hanging out with them. But by the time I was in seventh grade, I was doing the same things they were doing. You know, my granddad used to tell me it like this, Chris. He said, if you stay in the barber shop too long, you're going to get your hair cut. And uh, I stayed in there too long, and it wasn't long before I got involved in that drug scene, you know, smoking weed at a young age, and that progressed into popping prescription narcotic pain medicines as well as benzodiazepines like Xanax and Valium. Uh, got into high school, and it progressed into harder drugs like like uh, cocaine. And uh, we moved back up to the panhandle of Texas, and whenever we got there, um, there was a mess scene. And my cousin that that lived on the farm too, he was he was the first one of the first meth cooks that ever got busted in Southwest Kansas. One of the first meth labs that ever got busted. And uh, he's actually serving 25 years right now in prison for shooting a cop three years ago on Labor Day. But um, whenever I got back up there, uh, I went from playing Class 5A Texas football to playing Class 1A Texas football, which I mean that's a that's a big difference. And uh, I, I was succeeding very well at playing football. I mean, my goals and dreams and ambitions to go play college football and then get a degree in agriculture and go back and be a farmer looked like they were going to come true. And they instated a new policy that if you were involved in any extracurricular activities right after my junior year in football, you had to submit yourself to random drug analysis. And uh, it's the age-old story. I went to a party on a Friday night, smoked a little bit of weed, got popped on a drug test on Monday morning, and all my dreams came to a crashing halt right then. And I went into a deep, dark depression. My cousin had got out of prison at that same time, and I went and looked him up. And, uh, you know, I think deep down, down inside I wanted him to be doing better. But whenever I walked in his trailer house, and I don't know why, Chris, but it's like trailer house and meth. They go hand in hand for some reason. And I go walking into his trailer house, and uh, he had a, tray of white powder sitting on his coffee table and a big smile on his face and he says brad do you want to try this stuff and i looked at him and i remember thinking these thoughts i remember thinking dude are you crazy do i want to try this i mean it's taking your wife it's taking your kids it's taking your farm you know where i come from it's a big thing to own cows i mean he had a big herd of cows and he had lost everything it had even taken his freedom at one point and less than four months out of prison he was right back to doing the same thing and then he looked at me again and he says you want to try it and i told myself what a lot of kids tell themselves well i'm young now i'm just i'm just having fun you know i'll change when i get older i mean this stuff won't affect me like him i mean i won't become that guy so you tried it and what did, did you yep. smoke it yeah, I smoked it on some foil. And, um, and describe the feelings high. you had when, when you first. It was highly it. euphoric. It was highly euphoric, Chris. I'd always I'd I've been uh, diagnosed with ADD or ADHD or whatever they want to call it this week. You know, at a very young age, and uh, they had they had tried to prescribe me, uh, you know, a stimulant then to help with my ADHD and ADD, and uh, they uh, my parents were very against medication. And so I never did it. Whenever I did meth, it was like the most euphoric I'd ever felt in my life, and I could actually focus for the first time. 
And at first, I mean, I bought into the lie like a lot of meth addicts do. Oh, man, this is good. This is helping me. And uh, I thought things were actually, you know, this was this was a good thing. But then pretty soon the flip side happens where you have to have it. If you don't have it, you can't function. And then nobody can can sustain that high rate of stimulation either. I mean, whatever you're up for days on end, there's bound to be a fallout at some point. And then that's whenever the your dopamine levels and your norepinephrine and serotonin levels in your brain just get absolutely drained, and there is no feeling of good. There is no feeling of of being able to to feel happy. I mean, you just basically become numb to life to where you can feel no emotions unless you're using the drug. And I went through the cycle. I mean, I went from a kid that smoked it, swore I would never put a needle in my arm, to within six months of using meth, slamming a needle in my arm, shooting up drugs, and getting high. And, uh, I mean, in six months, I went from a young kid that cared about his family, who cared about his friends, that would have done anything to help a person. I mean, if I had $5 in my wallet and somebody needed it, I'd give it to them, even if that's all I had to my name. Within six months, I turned into that person that I was going to get what I wanted. I didn't care who I hurt. And if you got in my way, it was going to be just like on that football field. I was going to run you over. And I changed as a person due to it. It's um, it's funny that you mention um, how, how people with ADHD and meth complement each other, similar to how yeah. Adderall complements someone with ADHD. I've heard that they're both, time they're, and time again. They're both they're, – yeah, they're both stimulants. I mean, they're both out of the same genetic form. I mean, they're two different derivatives of the drug, but uh, they both are, are, are both stimulants and from the methamphetamine family. You became addicted to it. Things started to fall apart in your life, but how did, how were you introduced into cooking it? My cousin, this the first time, you know, I came and I tried it, went home and liked it. Came back a couple, probably about a week and a half later, and... Uh, he asked me if I wanted to learn how to make it, and uh, he taught me how to make man- manufacture methamphetamines when I was 17 years old. And uh, I mean, I remember I remember seeing him show me how to do it and thinking, "Oh my goodness!" I mean, that's it. <laughs> and what was, uh, uh, what it was we, the method that you learned how? It, we 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 were we were cold cooking, and uh, you know, cold cooking. There's a, there's a lot of different ways to do it. You know, a lot of people use precursors like red phosphorus, and my precursor was uh, anhydrous ammonia. And, uh, you know, pretty much the, the processes are similar after that that initial precursor is in, involved in it. But, uh, you know, basically whenever you're manufacturing uh, pseudo-based methamphetamines, you're just taking one oxygen molecule away from pseudoephedrine. And uh, whenever you figure out how to do that, then you got methamphetamines. So can you describe the process? Of, I've heard of cold cook, um, but I'm but I'm unfamiliar with the details. I've I've heard of things like the, it's called the fish tank method. I've even heard it called yeah. the, the Nazi method. What is the? Yeah, what it's the what it is. I mean, I'll basically I'll, I'll lay it out for you in in layman's terms. I'm not going to go into the process to to where people could could actually do it. Um, the the what happens is is basically. You know, you have anhydrous ammonia, pseudoephedrine, lithium, and uh, some kind of a ether or vapor layer. And you combine all of those things together. You let that cook down, 
then you have to go and you have to take that and turn it back into methamphetamine, which that's whenever your generators come involved with hydrochloric gas. And uh, your hydrochloric gas is what brings it back to a solid. And how much were you pulling? It would all depend on, you know, what your humidity was outside, what the temperature was outside. I mean, all of those different things. I never had a lab. I mean, people will think, you know, whenever they hear my story, you know, they they watch Breaking Bad or something of that nature. They're thinking of people that, you know, are, are cooking in lab and controlled environments. Nine times out of the ten, I was driving down a country dirt road, you know, with, with smoke barreling out the side of my window, you know, cooking up a batch of dope. And so it would all depend, you know. I mean, in a in a perfect world, if you're using using, um, and it's hard for me to even remember all the all the amounts right now. I think that Sudafed 24 hours are like 250 milligrams of Sudafedrin. In a perfect world, you should be able to get a quarter gram out of out of uh, out of, or you should be able to get a gram out of a box of uh, Sudafedrin for the amount that they sell at the store now. And uh, that'd be in a perfect world if you had all all of your your you know barometric pressure was right. I mean, it's just like baking a cake, Chris. I mean, if 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 the barometric pressure isn't right, if you have low pressures coming in, humidity's too high, heat's too high. I mean, all those things go into effect, and it'll affect yields. Were you making money at that time? Were you? How much were you making? Yeah, and not not even not even on purpose, Chris. I mean, to be honest with you. You know, my cousin told me, you know, never sell the kids and never give it to girls because it'll, 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 it'll really mess them up. You know, kids will get you in troubles and girls, it'll run their world. And, uh, you know, as, as much of a, uh, of a jack wagon as he is, I mean, he, he had some amount of sense about him that way. And, um, you know, so what I did is, you know, it's a bit where I lived at in the panhandle of Texas with my mom and dad, uh, it's a big oil field community. And, uh, I knew a lady that had a little underground bar because it's a dry county that we lived in that all the oil field guys would come to and drink. So I just go out there and pedal dope to them at, at the evening. And, uh, you know, by the time that, you know, I was a senior in high school, I was making more money than my dad in a week than he was making in a month. How much were you making in a week? Uh, it was easy, it was easy for me to pull in twelve hundred dollars a week without even trying. As a cook, did you start to become in demand in the area? Well, I mean, like I said, Chris, I didn't I didn't advertise. You know, whenever people whenever people advertise, they that's when they get in trouble. But there's always the people in the world that find out who where it's coming from. You know, they want to know. And uh, whenever that that would be found out, then yes, definitely. I mean, there would get rumors out about a lot of times. Whenever I was I was using a certain type of pill, it would come out pink, and uh, and there was other times I was using this other time that it would come out blue, and so I mean whenever it was pink, I mean people went nuts. I mean that's all they wanted was the pink stuff, and then whenever it came out blue, I mean that's all they wanted was the blue stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and so in that the people that that were getting it for me. You know, they're like, man, you know, people are going nuts over this stuff. And I would hear people talking about it. You know, they had no idea that it was even me involved with it. And I'd hear people talking about it and just thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, this is crazy. Can you can you, can you describe any instances where were you were you ever cooking for anyone else? Did uh, did you ever get involved with the cartel or? You know, I, I found out that, that uh, you know, leaving, leaving that part of my life behind me is definitely – definitely a, a better fit for me and, and everything like that. 
but yes, there was a time in my life that I, that I was approached by some guys that were very interested in uh, what I was doing, and uh, they wanted to learn, and I taught them. You know, and statistically, for every meth cook out there, he teaches 12 people, and uh, they were one of my 12, I guess. Um, what was your first run-in with the law? Well, I got out of I got out, I got, ended up getting kicked out of high school on drug charges. Um, I I got caught. I didn't get caught with meth. I got caught with a quarter pound of weed, and uh, which was kind of a I, I don't know. I, I I'm pretty sure I was set up on it, but you know, it's neither here nor there. But uh, I got caught with some uh, with some weed in a in was a small Kansas town. Yeah, Mexican dirt weed, and uh, got caught with some weed in a in a Mexican town or a small uh, Kansas town and uh, went back to school on Monday and uh, it went, I'll put it this way. The school, they had a, a lot of liberties. I'll just leave it at that. And I had a teacher that actually had a boyfriend that lived in the town that I got popped in and he read the newspaper and read that I was from Booker and then uh, ended up asking his uh, girlfriend, who was a teacher, she knew me, and sure enough, she was my history teacher, and uh, she went to the principal and told him that I got in trouble, and they took me into the office, and they ended up kicking me out of school for it, and uh, I had to finish off my senior year in an alternative program, and then moved up to our farm, and I, I, I decided to clean up at that point. I was done with the drugs, you know, I was done with that, I mean... I had a girlfriend at that time that I was, you know, thought we were looking at forward to starting a life together, you know, going to get engaged and all this kind of stuff. And um, I had my whole farm, you know, I was next in line to take over our farm. And I did real good for about six months. And I ended up going to Walmart one night to grab a few things. And I ran into an old friend and he told me he had a whole bunch of coke. And uh, he gave me a couple grams of Coke that night. I went back, and my grandpa was a diabetic, so I ran upstairs and grabbed some of his insulin syringes and went back down in the basement where I lived. And, I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever done cocaine, but, I mean, that drug, if you ever start, it's a hard thing to stop uh, just because it doesn't last very long and it makes you fiend so hard. So after that two grams was gone, I was really, really wanting some more. And... uh Ended up walking away from my farm and leaving everything for a $100 bag of cocaine that night. And ended up moving into this little flea bag hotel motel apartment. And uh, couldn't get a job because I couldn't pass a drug test. So I just started selling drugs and polluting our streets with poison at that point. And um, my cousin had went back to prison by that time, too. And so, you know, I basically knew all the people he was selling to. And I just stepped into his shoes and... And my accident happened about eight and a half months after that. When you were caught with that QP of weed, uh, what were you charged yeah. with? You know, I think that they just charged me with uh, possession of marijuana. Uh, it wasn't bagged up individually or anything like that. You know, I told them it was all personal use that I just bought it. And uh, I was only I was only 18 years old, and so actually it was deferred judification. I mean, it's not even on my record. Did you and, get caught uh, with any it, weapons? Yeah, I had a shot, a sawed-off shotgun in the back of my, in the very back of my El Camino. We had just cleaned out my El Camino. El Camino's have a little cubby hole behind the back seat, and uh, I had it shoved up all the way against the back, and it wasn't loaded. Thank goodness. And uh, I had it, 
I'll be honest with you because statute of limitations have, have, have ran out by this time, Chris. I had a 32 pistol sitting in my pants in a homemade holster that I had made whenever I got pulled over. And I had the clip in my right pocket. They found the clip. They patted me down. I changed clothes in front of them but never took off my boxers. While I was sitting in the interrogation room, I worked the gun into my into my boxers, and I sat in jail with a 32 pistol with a cartridge in the chamber in jail for about 48 hours. That's a true story, man. You can't make that stuff up. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, when <laughs> But, I mean, it, it was one of those things that, I mean, it was God watching out for me because if I, if I would have been caught with that, things would have went a lot worse for me. You were a and, uh, motherfucker. It, it, I, I, I got away with it, man, somehow. I mean, I, I don't know how, but uh, <laughs> I, it, it, was, it was probably one of the scariest things I've ever been through in my life right there. What's wild and, about uh, too is that you were caught with a sawed-off shotgun, and I know that, I know that Texas has, like, the most least restrictive gun laws in the U.S., and it's an automatic felony if you get caught off, caught with a sawed-off unless you've got a tax stamp from the ATF. That alone, it's got to be at least – it's got to be at least 10 inches, the barrel okay. does. And, gotcha. And, uh, and I measured it 10 inches before I chopped it off. <laughs> okay. Yep. I thought it had to be 18 was no, and so at least in the at least in the state of Texas, it, it, it was actually Kansas where I got arrested. It only okay. it has to be ten at least ten inches. Yep. You were down and out. You, you were you were kind of messed up, and now you were living in a motel, hustling. Um, yeah, I mean a little. It was a motel that they converted into like you know an apartment. It was like one of those real quality places, Chris. Let me tell you, you know, the type of place where you can lay down in your bathtub and watch your TV in the living room type of deal and you know, don't leave your ramen noodles laying out on the floor or the roaches are going to carry it away type of thing. And uh it was a you know, I was I was 19 years old by this point and shoot, I thought it was great, you know, finally out on my own, nobody telling me what to do and uh you know, just basically where where my heart was at that point is I just basically wanted to go out and sow my wild oats. And then whenever I got it out of my system, I was going to go back to the farm and be a farmer for the rest of my life. Because the hardest thing on the farm was this. I mean, in the middle of summer when it's 100 degrees outside, the corn's 10 foot tall, and our irrigation sprinkler, that's what we water our corn with, you know, it, it's stuck. you got a gearbox out. You finally get that fixed. you got 10 other things to do. So you go home to eat a bite for lunch. And you're sitting out on the front porch eating lunch, and you look out on the highway, and you see all your buddies headed to the lake with their boat, and you know you can't go. You know, I mean, that, that I, I remember sitting on that porch eating that sandwich that day, seeing my buddies headed to the lake in their boats, and thinking, this is going to be my life for the rest of my life. This is what I'm going to do. And I wanted to go out and have some. I wanted to go out and have some fun first, and uh, I just took it too far. During those days, describe your day-to-day life. How I mean, how how bad was your addiction at that point? Oh, I, you know, I, I was, you know, I was the type of person that didn't have to have it every. I mean, I, the way that I described it is, I didn't have to have meth every day, but I sure felt a lot better whenever I did. Um, you know, whenever I usually this is my day would entail, you know, get up, I might. If I was going to do dope that day, I'd shoot up a gram, you know, and it would 
it would rock it it set me off for at least you know anywhere from 48 to 56 hours you know i was high i wouldn't have to do anymore you know i would tell people i didn't even do it nobody a lot of people didn't even know i did it and uh you know i would i would do that for a couple days stay high hustle real real hard for those couple days but then i'd go home and sleep for two days then get up you know and go and make my rounds and, and stuff like that and usually have a hundred missed calls on my cell phone by the time I got back up and uh then the whole cycle would start over again. You know, I usually go, you know, somewhere three to four days without doing it and so I could stay clear headed and then boom, I'd be off on it again. And uh the closer it got to my accident, the more I was doing it every day though. You know, at first it was like, you know, every three to four days I would do it or something like that. You know, I'd, I'd do it for three days and then not do it for three days and then do it for three days and not do it for three days. But then after uh, getting closer to my accident, I mean, I I was I was pretty much on it all the time. And that's where I became volatile. I mean, I, I wasn't thinking straight. You know, I mean, I was so paranoid out of my mind. I thought everybody was cops. I mean, I was just, I was absolutely losing my mind. And uh, the night my accident happened, um, I had planned on sleeping that night. And I'd, I'd been up for two days. And um, I just got off the phone with my dad. And my dad knew I was high. And uh, he looks at my at my mom and he says, uh, you know, we, we got to pray, Donna. And my dad's a man of faith. And uh, my mom says, well, what do we pray? We've prayed everything. And he said, well, we haven't prayed this. And I'm going to tell you the prayer my dad prayed. And uh, he said, you know, God, you could be a better father to my son than I could ever be. You know, I've raised him up in your ways. He knows what he's supposed to be about in this life, and he's running from you. And whatever it takes in my son's life to bring him back to you, let it be done. And uh, he didn't know what the outcome of that prayer was going to be, but he said he had more more peace that night than he had had in the last year. And... um, there probably no sooner than I got off the phone with him, there was a knock on my door. There was a young girl I'd grown up with the majority of my life. Um, she told me there was a party going on at her house, and there were some young men there that wanted to buy some meth and ask if I had any for sale, and I told her I had a little bit. I didn't have much. I just got back from Mexico, and uh, I had a little bit, but not a whole lot. And um, so I go over to her house and uh, sell the guys the, the drugs, and uh, they go back in the back room, and I wasn't even going to do any that night. I was, like I said, I was going to sleep. And they went back in the back room and used the drugs. Probably 35, 45 minutes later, they came back out and said, man, Brad, that stuff was good. Can you get any more? And uh, I asked the guy that owned the house, I said, well, you want to go with me? And he said, sure. So we drove over to my apartment, grabbed my duffel bag full of supplies, drove out in the country, out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, where I, where I grew up, I mean, it's one of the most lowly populated areas in the United States of America, nine people per square mile. So if you want to get away from people, you can get away from people. And uh, so we're out in the middle of this big, big grass field uh, down in a low spot in a ravine. It was 17 degrees out that night, so we had the heater on full blast in that in the inside the vehicle to try to stay warm and, and to keep it from free, keeping stuff from freezing up. And uh, I was at the very final stage of uh, producing the drug. I was about to gas it with hydrochloric gas. And uh, I had an 8 by 10 glass Pyrex dish, like you make casseroles or brownies or something of that nature in. 
And inside of that pan, it had 24 ounces of ether in it, starting fluid, a highly, highly, highly flammable substance. This is the same substance that you use on a cold winter morning to fire off a diesel engine. I mean, the mere vapor of this substance can combust with just a simple spark. And uh, the young man I was with, he lit a cigarette. And there was enough ether vapor that had built up inside the, the cab of that El Camino pickup that it ignited and made a big whoosh at that time. And it wasn't, you know, we weren't really burned at that point, maybe a little bit singed, like if you let propane go too long in the propane grill and hit the button and it makes that noise. No, we were probably a little bit singed, but it caught the top ether layer on fire in that, that Pyrex dish that I was holding. And so I'm holding that Pyrex dish out in front of me, and it's catching the headliner on fire in my vehicle. And I look at the young man I'm with, and I tell him, get out, get out, get out, get out. And he jumps out of the passenger side of my vehicle. And uh, once he jumped out of the passenger side, I just tried to throw the pan out after him to get it away from me. And whenever I threw it, all that ether combusted, and it, vapor, it vaporized, and then it combusted. And there was such an explosion, and there was such a, a fireball and, of an inferno that was caused from that, that it, and such a suction that was caused that it literally sucked the doors back shut on my vehicle. And uh, I don't know if you ever saw the science experiment in school where you make a fire inside of a jar, and then you take a hard-boiled egg, and you put it on top, and it sucks the egg down into the jar. Same basic principle there. They sucked the door back shut on my vehicle. Well, now all that was feeding that vapor or feeding that fire, because fire needs two things to burn. It needs, it needs fuel and it needs oxygen. And now what was feeding that fire was those two-inch cracks that were in my vehicle that had once been ventilating out the fumes. Now they were sucking in oxygen and causing a suction inside the vehicle to where I couldn't get out. And I was a big, strong kid, man. I mean, I weighed about 195 pounds. You know, I had a had a 50-inch chest, worked out every day, and, uh, you know, it was not the picture of a meth addict that you would you would typically uh, think about in your mind. And um, ended up, uh, you know, fighting and, and wrestling and tussling with the door, and uh, finally so the got car, the door the out. actually imploded. Yeah, yeah, I mean, more or less, more or less, yeah. I mean, all that all that fuel was inside of that vehicle now, and it needed oxygen, so it was sucking it, and um, it was uh, it was sucking through the vents, you know, causing causing a vacuum inside of there to where I couldn't open up the doors. And Chris, I can't express I can't express to you how loud fire is. You know, the only only way I can somewhat describe it to people is think about a a thousand CX trains going about going by you, you know, uh, right up against your ear at a thousand miles an hour apiece. And uh, that 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 would maybe do it a little bit of justice. And uh, finally got the door open, it hit the ground, and I'll put it this way: stop, drop, and roll took on a whole new meaning at that point. Hit the ground, started rolling. Uh, finally got the fire out. And to tell you how good of friends the people are are in that lifestyle with the person, the dude left me out there, laid out in the middle of a field in Southwest Kansas for four and a half hours, uh, had to fight off coyotes. I mean, I mean, it, it, it's a it's the craziest story you could ever imagine. And uh, finally, after four and a half hours, he'd made it all the way back home, told his Brad, wife I was dead. Fight, you had to fight off coyotes? Yeah, yeah, you can't make it up, man. I'm serious. <laughs> what the? I mean, what? You it, 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 that. What the hell happened? Well, after I got the fire out, I stood up and I walked as far away from my from my El Camino as I could get because I was afraid it was going to blow up. I just filled it up with, with gas. And uh, it was all on fire. I mean, I was sitting there watching this car that my dad and I had built from the ground up that I loved uh, just burn and laid down 
because I mean I was a little bit tired. And uh, I remember I was looking up at the stars and all. The, whenever I was growing up, Chris, you know my my biggest fear in life whenever I was growing up on the farm was taking the trash out at night because in the country we burn our trash or we used to before people decided that that was bad for the ozone. But we used to burn our trash and. Uh, I was always afraid to take the trash out to the trash incinerator because it was right beside this big grass field, and I could always hear the coyotes out there. And so I dropped the trash in the trash incinerator as fast as I could and run it or run as hard as I could back to the house because I was afraid those coyotes would get me. And uh, I'm laying out there in this field and I'm looking at the stars, just just basically praying to God to help me to to live and and bring help somehow. And uh, all of a sudden, I started hearing the coyotes yelping. And I coyote hunted enough in my life, I knew they weren't very far away. And they kept on getting closer, they kept on getting closer, and they kept on getting closer. And they were probably within 75 yards of me. And I knew, I was like, i got to do something to, to get rid of them. So I started screaming at the top of my lungs like I was a farmer or, or something like that, calling for his dog to come in. And uh got up, and, you know, I, I, I couldn't, my hands were so burned, I couldn't push off the ground to stand up. And so I had to rock myself back and forth to to stand up. And so I stood up, and I, I put my hands up in the air as high as I could, as bad as it hurt, and started screaming at the top of my lungs, running, and uh, they took off. And I'm, all I can think in my mind is, man, it's a good day to be a coyote. They got a hot, hot fire right there and a warm cooked meal. But that's a bad joke, isn't it? That's a real bad joke. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> that's, that's insane, but, man. That's okay. but, uh how bad were the burns that, that you were I was burned on 80% of my body, third and fourth degree, buddy. I mean, from my waist up, I was burned third and fourth degree. I didn't even know there was a such thing as a fourth degree burn. Fourth degree burns all the way to the bone. My chin was burned all the way to the bone. Uh, they life-flighted me from Liberal, Kansas, to the Via Christi St. Francis Burn Center in Wichita, Kansas. Um, they gave me less than one-tenth of one percent chance to live. One-tenth. The way that they so, figure out your... The way they figure up out, out your rating is like this: they uh, they take your age and the percentage of burn and whatever's left over is your percentage to live. So I was uh, I was 19 years old. I was burned on 80 percent of my body, so that gave me one percent chance to live. But I had inhalation burns too because I had been I was in that fire long enough. I had to take a breath that uh, that took away my one percent even from from being burned. To being stranded, how long did it take for help to arrive? Uh, almost five hours, four and a half hours. It was real close to five hours. And can you describe the scene when you when you entered the ER? Were you conscious at that point, or? Oh yeah, I was conscious of the whole thing. I would I wouldn't allow myself to go into shock because I knew if I went into shock, I was going to die. Um, finally, after you know four and a half hours, the guy had made it all the way back to his to his house, told his wife I was dead, and uh, she, finally after 30 minutes of, 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 you know, begging him to tell tell him where, I, or tell her where I was at, she drove back out there just to see if I was alive or not, and, you know, I'm so glad that she knew the area, and uh, she came out there, and I've never been so happy to see that Z, or that IROC Z Camaro coming down that dirt road, man. And I ran over to the car, and I sat down, and I, when I sat down, I looked at it, and I said, turn on the heater, I'm freezing. Like I said, it was 17 degrees out, and everything had burned off with my boxers in one sock. And uh, 
So I'm laying, I, I sit down in the seat, she turns on the heater, and as soon as the heat from the heater mince hits me, I can feel all my skin start to tighten up like tan leather, and I knew it was getting real hard to breathe. And um, I told her to drive as fast as she could, and she drove as fast as she could to the hospital in, in Liberal. And uh, when we got to the hospital, nobody had dialed 911 or anything like that. So we were honking our horn as we're pulling up to the ER where the ambulance was pulled up. And I can remember looking in there, and I can see the ladies in there drinking coffee. And one of the ladies, her name's Barb, she comes running out to the car, and, and she opens up the door to to the uh, that Camaro. And, and I remember laying out there in the field. The whole time I was laying out there, all, all I could, the thought that was going through my mind is, if I get to the hospital, I'm going to be okay. If I get to the hospital, I'm going to live. And she opens up the door to the, that Camaro, looks down at me, and she goes, oh, my gosh, what do I do? You're burned all over. And I look up at her, and I say, you're asking me what to do. You know, I mean, I'm thinking, oh, this isn't good. And I tell her, well, help me up, you know, help me up, you know, grab me underneath my legs. I can walk in. And she goes, you can walk? And I said, yes, ma'am. And I didn't realize how burned I was at that point, really. You know, whenever you have third and fourth degree burns, it burns through all the, the nerves and everything. So, yeah, I knew I knew it, you know, spots hurt, but it, it wasn't like, like it, I, I just knew it was bad. And so I go walking into the emergency room, and I look down. And that was the first time that I was underneath light. And uh, I could see all the skin just hanging off my hand like like pork skins. It was all stuffing off. And I was like, oh, man, this isn't good. And I laid down on the stretcher, and I said, Barb, I'm alive. I died I died out there. I'm alive. And uh, she says, you're going to make it, Brad. And I said, well, you better do something quick. She goes, do you want me to call somebody? And I said, Barb, I want you to call my grandma and tell her I'm sorry because I hadn't, re- I hadn't apologized to her yet for leaving the farm like I did. I said, just call her and tell her I'm sorry. Just call her and tell her I'm sorry. And uh, then they gave me a drug called Versed and some morphine for pain and uh, intubated me. So I don't remember the life flight from from Liberal to the Via Christi St. Francis Burn Center in Wichita, Kansas. But I remember waking up in the burn unit with all these bright lights over the top of me, and they were taking off my necklace that I wore. And I was wondering why they were doing that. And then uh, the next, they put me into a four and a half month drug induced coma. For four and a half months, I didn't know anything. Basically, they had my eyes sewed shut. You know, I endured over over 32 surgeries initially. Um, I mean, so I, when you it, arrive it, at there's a, a lot unit, there. When you arrive yeah. at a burn unit, what are the first steps that the doctors took to save your life? They have to clean you. So basically, they they took me in and they started cleaning cleaning all of the the dirt and debris and everything off me. Did I'm the I'm the very first burns. You know, burns get progressively worse. People a lot of times they will uh, they will uh, you know live initially, but you know after time you know what what's called ARDS will set in adult respiratory distress where your lungs fill up with fluids and and you basically get you know die from that because your lungs are full of fluid and they won't absorb oxygen anymore. Or you'll die from kidney and liver failure, or mainly kidney failure, because they have to pump so many fluids into you to try to keep you hydrated. And uh, just you turn into like a big water blister, basically. My head was the size of a Michelin man at one point. You know, it didn't even look human. They were giving me two liters of water. They were giving me that every hour. You know, like two two two-liter bottles of soda. They were giving me that in fluids every hour, and that's too that's too much uh, fluids for your kidneys to even basically be able to to uh, filter out, and uh, so your your kidneys shut down a lot of time. I'm, I'm a walking talking miracle, Chris, that you're talking to right now. Um, my lungs. I told you I had inhalation burns. 
Uh, my dad, after seven, or whenever they first took me in there, I'm the first person that they've ever taken in uh, directly into surgery. They had to get all the skin. They immediately debrided over 80 pounds of skin and flesh off me. Like I said, I was a big, strong kid. And uh, they debrided over 80 pounds of skin and flesh. They took all this, the skin off of my chest so my lungs could expand. They took all the skin off my arms so the circulation uh, would get back to my hands because they swelled up so tight I was losing circulation on my hands. You know, I still have all my hands. I don't have all my fingers. I have, I have some of them. But I still have both my hands and both my arms and, and both my legs. And they didn't think I would ever have all that. I mean, they first off, they didn't even think I was going to live. But uh, I had inhalation burns so bad that my dad said the smell in my room two days into it was absolutely atrocious. And um, he finally had to go get some sleep. So he went over to the hot, to the hotel and got some sleep and uh, came back the next morning. And my room just happened to be right as soon as he walked into the burn unit. My room was the first room that you saw. And he comes walking through the doors of the burn unit and he looks looks in there and he sees these two doctors and they're arguing and he kind of, you know, gets a, gets a little bit in a hurry then because he didn't know if I had died or what had happened. And he sees these two doctors arguing, and one doctor's going, I'm telling you, this is the same kid. And the other, other doctor's saying, no, it can't be the same kid. And the guy's saying, no, I'm telling you, it's the same kid. And the doctor's saying, no, how can it be? You look right here, you see the pus pockets, you see the, the scarring in the lungs, you see the inhalation burns and everything like that in his lungs. I've been the doctor that scoped him every single day where they send a scope down your lungs and look at him, and you look at these lungs, they're fresh, they're clean lungs, there's not a scar in them. I have totally new lungs, man. I have zero health problems and zero health complications due to my burn accident. And uh, there's only one person I can thank for that, I'll guarantee it. <laughs> so your internal organs... We're yeah. Fine. Totally everything. That's amazing. Did you yep. did you flatline at any point? Three times during surgeries. Um, yeah, flatlined. Uh, every time they were able to come back, and they 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 couldn't figure out how I had the strength to even do it. I can't even tell you how I did, Chris. Obviously, I'm here for a reason. I mean, that's the only only conclusion that I can come to. And um, you know, so, to, to so let take us so take us through your recovery, man. Like, yeah, I went. I woke up out of out of a four and a half month drug induced coma. Uh, they put me into what was called acute rehabilitation. Chris, anytime they tell you something's acute in life, there ain't nothing cute about it, buddy. I mean, it's ugly. It's hell. Um, I had what was called heterotoxic oxification set into my joints. HO for short. <laughs> and basically, whenever you go through a traumatic injury, your body wants to heal itself. And uh, a lot of people's body, the way that it tries to heal itself is to produce calcium. You know, calcium is one of the main healing components of our bodies. Uh, after they put new and fresh grafts on me, they weren't able to move my arms. They weren't able to move my legs a lot. So my body, whenever it started to produce that calcium, it started to lay in my joints. So whenever I woke up out of a coma, my my knees only bent 17 degrees and my elbows only bent 14 degrees. And uh, so whenever I went into acute, re acute rehabilitation, they basically had to break bones in my joints. That part of, of my recovery was so painful and so overwhelming, Chris, that I blocked a lot of it out mentally. That, uh, I mean, they would have to put me into a soundproof room and uh, and and break, break 
to do what they had to do until finally my dad would tell him he can't take anymore. He, he He's done. I mean, it didn't matter how many, you know, prescription narcotic pain medications they give me or how many benzodiazepines like Xanax or Valium they gave me that take the pain away. I, I still felt every bit of it. And, uh, and plus I built up such a high tolerance to all that stuff, you know, by being in a four and a half month drug induced coma that, you know, there wasn't enough that they could give me with that safely. Uh, by not being on a ventilator or something of, of, of those sorts. And so finally, after being in there for about a month and a half, uh, my dad said, I'm just going to take him home and uh, loaded me up with my mom and uh, my dad's a grand marquee and drove me back to Texas. And uh, I cannot tell you how much I owe my parents. I had the most amazing parents in the world, Chris. I was 20 years old. I was an invalid. I couldn't wipe my own butt. I couldn't feed myself. I couldn't bathe myself. I couldn't take care of my very basic of necessities. I had to rely on everything for my parents. And this is the part of my life I like to call the victim part of my life because I was a victim at that point. Or I'll refer to it as the Eeyore mentality. You remember Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh? You remember yeah. how down in the dumps he was? You know, he's always had a rain cloud over him. Oh, I lost my tail today. Right. Oh, even when Pooh was trying to cheer him up about something good that was happening in the forest, Eeyore could never even see it. Because whenever we're nose to nose with our problems, we have to live it, breathe it, and smell it every single day. Guess what? It's real hard to realize that there is light at the end of the tunnel. And I was living in it. And at my lowest point, I remember... Um, I was in the shower. My dad was giving me a shower, and I looked at him, and I said, Dad, I'm pathetic. And he says, Brad, why do you say you're pathetic? And I said, Dad, do you realize that I couldn't even kill myself right now if I wanted to? And honestly, Chris, I couldn't have. I mean, if I would have had a gun set in front of me, I could have manipulated a trigger to be able to use it. If I would have had my pills sitting in front of me, I couldn't have opened up the pills to take them. I remember reading somewhere that you could drown in four inches of water, and I remember looking down in that bathtub wondering if there was four inches of water down there that I could drown myself in. That's how low I was. And my dad looked at me, and he said, Brad, you're not pathetic. There's a reason that you're still here. And every morning, like I said, my dad's a man of faith. Every morning from that moment on, my dad would come in, and he would read Jeremiah 29:11 over me. And uh, Jeremiah 29:11 says this, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans not to harm you, but plans to give you a hope and to give you a future. And at first, whenever he would read that over me, Chris, I would get angry. I was mad. You know, I'd go to bed at night, and I still had open wounds on my head because they hadn't grafted my head yet. I'd go to bed at night, and I'd wake up, and my head would be stuck to my pillow, and I couldn't even get my head off my pillow is how bad I was. You know, I'm not saying that I would have killed myself at that point, but it sure would have been easier not to wake up in the morning. I mean, I was absolutely miserable. All I could hear at that point in my life was all the negatives. Oh, Brad, you're never going to be able to do this again. You're never going to be able to hunt like you used to. You're never going to be able to fish like you used to. You know, you're never going to do this. You're never going to do that. And I was consumed by that. This, that, that weight was just oppressing me so much that I, 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 I couldn't even hear anything else. And so my dad bought this video camera. And, oh, Chris, I was furious at him, man. Oh, I'm serious, because I didn't want to see myself. I mean, you, you, you can't imagine what it's like, and, and your listeners, I mean, you, you got unless you've been through something like this, you can't imagine what it's like looking in a mirror and not recognizing yourself. I mean, not recognizing the, the, the person that you've been for all these years is all of a sudden gone. Now, all of a sudden, you, you don't even know who you are. And uh, he bought this video camera, and I was mad because I didn't want to see myself, and he wouldn't tell me why he did it. 
And I had to go to rehab, uh, physical therapy rehab, uh, four times a week at that point. And, uh, every day at rehab, he would videotape me. And he did this for about six to eight months or six to eight weeks. And finally, at the end of that, we were sitting in the living room as a family one night and he comes walking in. He says, Brad, I want you to see this. And he pops this video in and he hits play. And the first of the video, I couldn't even take two steps on my own. Well, then a week goes by and I'm taking four steps on my own. Another week goes by, I'm taking eight. Another week comes by, I'm taking 12. Another week comes by, I'm walking all the way around the therapy room. Another week comes by, I'm walking all the way out to the bathroom and back. Another week comes by, I'm walking all the way to the cafeteria and back. And all of a sudden, I call this point in my life the paradigm shift. Because all of a sudden, my mindset went from, I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm never going to do all those negative things. To, I'm never going to get better to... Oh, my gosh, I'm getting better. But whenever I was nose-to-nose with that problem, whenever I had to see it every single day, whenever I had to live it, you know what, man? I didn't realize I was getting better. I didn't realize that there was hope because I had to live it every single day. But whenever I was able to take that step back and watch it from a different perspective and to see the progress firsthand and not have to feel the pain and not have to think about the hurt and all of those different types of things, all of a sudden, it happened in my mind that my attitude went from I'm never going to be able to do this again to tell me I can't do anything or tell me I can't do something. I'll prove you wrong. And I call that part of my life where I walked into the survivor mentality because victims die, Chris. But survivors, you know what they do? They thrive in what they're doing. That's incredible. And, uh, and that's, where, that's where I decided that, you know what, I'm getting better I'm going to go do, I'm going to live life to the fullest. I met my wife. We got married, and we decided we were going to go out and change the world and tell people, hey, you know what? You don't have to be a victim in life. You can get out, and you can do whatever you want if you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and move on. And uh, I tell people like this, Chris, and I'll end it with this. You know how, you know how they eat an elephant, right? One bite at a time. You know how you change the world, Chris? One person at a time. And that's exactly what our heart is, to change the world, man. That's heavy. I admire I admire your strength, man. Dude, I get to ha- I I have the most blessed life you can imagine, Chris. I get to have so much fun. I, I mean, I get to travel around the country, speaking to kids, meeting new people. I mean, we just I, I, we bought a small farm here. I mean, I I live up in the mountains of Colorado at ninety five hundred feet, an hour from the ski resorts. And then I, I have a, a small farm in southern in southern Missouri with the best turkey and deer hunting you've ever done in your life. I mean, biggest rivers to go fishing on. I mean, I'm I'm living the dream, man. And I'm not trying to brag about that or anything like that or glorify my story in any ways. But it just goes to show whenever you step into that mentality and you decide to put others in front of yourself, things happen for you in life. It, it pays off in the long run. Karma happens. Because, I mean, honestly, man, I don't live for myself. I live to help one kid. If I can help one kid not to make the same choices I made, if I can help one kid from going down the road that I went down, I'll proudly wear these scars every day of the week. I'll walk down the road with my head held high and my chest bowed out because guess what? I changed the world for that kid. So tell me about the people that you help, man. What are you you doing today? Yeah. We we have a 501c3 called uh, Heron Educational Learning Programs, HELP Inc., H-E-L-P Inc. And uh, basically what we do through that is we send people to rehabs all across the nation. 
uh, through whenever we go out and speak, we meet all kinds of kids that just don't have a hope and don't have a future. We do mentoring programs. I'm a resiliency coach with the military. I do PTSD awareness as well as uh, suicide prevention with the military. And, uh, you know, I get to, I, I get to, to meet so many amazing and awesome people that I, I, I can't even, it, just people that need a chance in life. Um, they just need to, just need to know that somebody believes in them. And it's amazing what happens whenever a person that has been told they will be nothing their whole entire life finds somebody that says, you know what, if you want to accomplish that, let's get her done. And we go out and we make it happen. It changes the world for them, man. Uh, there's, there's, we send kids from young to old. Uh, we, we send, you know, over, over 82 different people through rehabs right now. And, uh, it, it's just, it, it's been awesome to see their stories and, and their success stories. And out of those 82 people, we've only had eight people that haven't completed the programs. And, uh, you know, that's their choice. But I'll give it, I'll, I live by the, this motto in life, Chris. I'll treat people just as good as they'll let me. And, uh, I treat people how I'd want to be treated. And in that, it's paid off a lot in the long run. <laughs> you know, someone might be listening to your story right now, and they might be feeling like they can't go on with with life, with whatever problems they might have. What advice would you give those people out there? You know what? Life is full of seasons, times and seasons. And what you're going through right now does not have to be the story of your life. It just can merely be a chapter. But you are the one that's writing that book right now. And you're the one going through that season right now. I know at times it feels like the weight of the world is on top of you, like you're never going to be able to overcome it. You're never going to be able to achieve the goals that you've had. Maybe you've twisted off those goals. But I guarantee you this, if your mindset changes from not me all the time to other people, because I'll put it this way, Oswald Chambers started the the largest charitable organization in the world, the Salvation Army. It's huge. Everybody knows what it is. Everybody sees those people out there ringing the bell during Christmas. And whenever Oswald Chambers was on his deathbed, he'd been in and out of consciousness for three days. They knew he was going to die. He was in hospice care. He hadn't really said anything for three days. His his wife and his daughter were in the bedroom, and I believe his son was in there too, were in the, in the bedroom, and they were talking about what to write on his dad's epitaph. You know, what, what are we going to write about him? And his daughter was saying, I want, I want everybody to write, you know, how great of a man he was and, and, and how great of a dad he was and how he was always there for me. And his son says, yeah, I want him to write how great of a father he was to me, how he always made my football games and how he did this. And his wife said, yeah, that's what I want people to realize is, you know, how, how great of a husband he was to me and all this stuff. And he stood up out of a three days, you know, in and out of a coma, looked dead at him in his eyes. And he said, no, no, one word. O-T-H-E-R-S. Others. Others are what really matter. If you go look at Oswald Chambers' tombstone to this day, it says one word on it. First it has his date he was born. And the two most prominent things on the tombstone are this, the day you were born and the day you die, right? But you know what matters? That little dash in the middle. And in the middle of Oswald Chambers' dash, guess what it says? Others. Because that's what he dedicated his life to. And that's what I've dedicated mine to. Other people. I lived for myself long enough. And I, I got the scars to prove what it does to a person. The scars I wear on the outside 
are the exact representation of what happens to other people that are selfish on the inside. Mine are just more evident on the outside. Well but said. other people are what truly matter. Well said. Brad, thank you for speaking with me. No problem, man. It was my honor, Chris. I appreciate it.